18. If you don't have a Bible and need to use the one in the pew, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 is on page 952 of that Bible. We will read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, uh, and then we will pray together, um, and then we will begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word today. And we long more than anything else to hear your voice, for your spirit to work through your word to comfort and strengthen and convict and encourage the hearts of your people. 
to convict and convert the hearts of those who are not yet your people. We pray, Lord, that you would, through your word, help us to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, growing up, our parents tell us things, a lot of things actually, that don't make any sense, at least not to us. Their ideas don't make sense. Their rules don't make sense. Rules about screen time or chores or dating or what time you need to be at home, they simply don't make sense. Their parental wisdom does not make sense. I remember uh, I wanted to quit my first job, which was at McDonald's. And I wanted to quit because I was tired of coming home smelling like McDonald's. And I told my dad this, that I wanted to quit and just to find, go find another job, but my dad wouldn't let me quit. He wouldn't let me quit until I had another job. And I thought that was ridiculous, but I went along with it. And I moved on from McDonald's to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Needless to say, I still smelled. But as a child, our, our parents' way of thinking doesn't make sense. Their wisdom doesn't make sense. There is a disconnect between them and us. Now, the good news is that typically, given time and life experience and often mistakes on our part, our parents' wisdom slowly starts to make sense. The wisdom starts sounding wise instead of ridiculous. But though that happens with our parents' wisdom, it does not happen with God's wisdom. There isn't enough time or enough life experience for human beings to come to think that God's wisdom is actually wise. It doesn't naturally happen that way. The disconnect is far deeper. So that through Isaiah, God tells His people, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't make sense to the world. That is most especially true when it comes to matters of salvation. We do not see our sin as bad as God does. We don't see why God has to judge anyone except maybe the Hitlers of the world. We don't understand why all the blood, why the death of Jesus. Can't God just forgive us without all of that? So, when your friend looks at you confused or pushes back 
or thinks you're crazy when you share the gospel and share with them that Jesus' death is the only way of forgiveness, don't be surprised because the gospel doesn't naturally make sense to anyone. It goes against our thinking. As we come back to 1 Corinthians in our walk through this letter, Paul has rebuked the church for its sinful divisions. They've gone the world's way on that. They, they divide it up according to which teacher they like best, and they follow their guy. And that was happening every day on the streets of Corinth. Traveling teachers would come through. Philosophers would be there. And you would gather up to the guy that you heard yesterday and you like so much, so you go listen to that guy some more, and you follow him. But Paul says, that's not the way the church works. That's not how Christians work. The messengers aren't the ones that should capture our heart. It should be the message. It should be the gospel. It should be the word of the cross. And in this section, he elaborates on this gospel. This gospel, which is the only thing that's going to hold the church together, which is the only true source of unity. So he's going to elaborate on it and say that the gospel that unifies the church makes no sense to the world. No sense whatsoever. And we see three very distinct things here. The first thing we see is the unexpected power of the cross. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, the cross is Paul's shorthand for Jesus' death on our behalf, for Him taking our sin, our guilt, our shame, bearing it in His body, having it written on His record and taken off of ours, facing the wrath of God in our place, facing divine punishment for us, enduring it for us, suffering for us, dying for us, to forgive us and to rescue us from that same wrath. That is the cross. But in the Greco-Roman world, the whole idea of crucifixion and of dying on a cross is shameful. It is a brutal, disgusting practice reserved for convicted slaves and terrorists. There's nothing noble about a cross. There's nothing uplifting about a cross. You don't mention it in polite conversation at dinner parties. That would be like cheerfully talking about execution by the electric chair. It's unthinkable. We make golden crosses and we wear them around our necks. We make beautiful crosses of wood and stain them. But the cross is not a place of beauty. It's an ugly place. The cross should turn our stomachs. That's what it did in the Greco-Roman world. It's understandable then that to some this word of the cross is absurd. It makes no sense to speak so highly of one of the worst ways to die and one who endured it. So, 
Because it makes no sense, verses 22 and 23, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So on one side are the Jews. They want signs. They've always wanted signs, haven't they? You remember the earthly ministry of Jesus? They're always calling for a sign. Well, what sign do you do to prove to us who you are? Because the cross doesn't make sense. You see, according to the law, those who hang on trees are cursed. They're not blessed. Jesus cannot possibly be the Messiah. They, I, as a Jew, I cannot wrap my mind around such a thing. God would not curse the one He promised all through our Scriptures. And then on the other side are the Greeks. They're not so interested in signs, but they love their rationality. They love their philosopher, philosophy. They love their high-minded thinking. And in their minds, there, there is no room for a God like this. You see, gods obliterate their enemies. They don't submit to death at the hands of their enemies. This makes no sense. There was a famous drawing in Rome at the time of a worshiper looking up to a figure crucified on a cross. That figure had the body of a man but the head of a donkey. That's what Greeks thought about the cross. That's ridiculous. You want me to bow down and worship a God who couldn't defeat his enemies? Ludicrous. But the cross that looks like foolishness, that is foolish to the world. The cross that the world diminishes has power that the world does not expect. It has the power, first of all, to make the world's wisdom into foolishness. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Answer, nowhere to be found. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now here in verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29. Let me just read a bit of it. Let me read the verse before he quotes and then part of what he, quote, what he quotes there in it says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. You see, Isaiah is talking to people who think they've got it figured out. According to their wisdom, all they need to do is show up at church like this and say the right words and sing the right songs and subscribe to the right theology and all is well. I come here and I do the right things on Sunday, and then I just go about my business the rest of the week. And God gives me a great big thumbs up. He likes my post when I say I've been at church that morning. This is the wisdom of the world. 
And God says he'll overthrow that wisdom. He makes that kind of wisdom look like foolishness. And the wisdom of the world is multivarious, isn't it? Consider this. Haven't you heard things similar to this? Well, you know, sin is just a social construct meant to control and oppress people. It has nothing to do with God. Or sins like religious pride and greed and oppression and racism and injustice, these are the important sins, but the sins that just are about me and my life, these are the lesser sins. You're being awfully judgmental just to talk about things that are only in my life. Or how can sin be all that bad when all I want is fulfillment? All I want is to be the real me. Isn't it? Wouldn't God want me to be the real me? To go through whatever process it is, to make whatever declaration it is, so I could just be the real me? Isn't that what God wants? Or. Well, God just, God forgives everyone, accepts everyone regardless of their belief because God is love. And you can just do variations on those themes, can't you? And you'll find them everywhere. You'll find them in your family, you'll find them at your workplace find them in your friendships. But the cross overthrows that so-called wisdom and exposes its foolishness. Listen, the cross says God is holy. The cross says sin will not be tolerated in any of its forms, whether it is the large societal sins or whether it is the small just me sins. The cross actually says, God doesn't want you to be what you think is the real you. There's something wrong with the real you. That's what the cross says. The cross wants to change that reality. The cross says, God will not wink at your sin. God will not look the other way. He will punish sin. He must punish sin. But the cross also says that He will punish your sin in Jesus and save you if you will believe. And that turns the wisdom of the world on its head. It also has unexpected power to save those who believe. This foolish message about a crucified Messiah looks like it does nothing but delude and deceive, but in reality it delivers and rescues and saves. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. That's what he's saying in verse 21. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Just underline that. The world did not know God through wisdom. 
And sidebar, it cannot know God through wisdom, not through human wisdom, not through worldly wisdom. Cannot. It needs the foolish cross. It needs fools like us who actually believe this and will proclaim it. You see, this salvation isn't for those who have the intellect to figure it out. It isn't for those who are wise enough to wrap their minds around it. It's for those who believe. That's the key. It's not the intellect. It's the faith. It saves those who trust God's wisdom over their own, who trust God's way over their own, who trust God's provision for sin over their own efforts. And the only way they come to that place, going from seeing the cross as foolish to seeing the cross as saving, is the work of God in their lives, the call of God. If you look at verse 24, after saying that the Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, same categories, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Only those who are called are going to lay down their own wisdom and take hold of the cross. That inner call of God that calls us out of the grave of our own sin, out of our own wisdom, and into eternal life. Out of thinking that somehow you are, you are creating for yourself a path from heaven for, 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 from being here every Sunday. Being here gets you nothing, friend. Nothing. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you showing up here is just like the people in Israel showing up to the temple and saying all the words and their hearts being far from Him. It may not be often that you hear a pastor say, it doesn't matter that you're here, but it doesn't matter that you're here. It doesn't matter that you got here. What matters is whether He got you. That's what matters. It's to the ones who are called. It's the ones who know His grace. And having been called, only people who are called, only who know the people who know the transforming power of grace say something like verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, there may be people who want to put you in a straitjacket for saying such things. But this is the hidden reality of the wisdom of God. It's the unexpected power of the cross. Secondly, we see the unexpected people of the cross. The people of the cross are just as surprising as the power of the cross. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This church isn't full of the upper crust, the elite, the folks who have, who have power in society. These aren't the people that everybody's looking up to. 
They don't have thousands of followers on social media. Nobody subscribes to their YouTube channel. Nobody's asking for their autograph. In the world's eyes, this crew is nothing to look at. Now, some of the people actually are wealthy and are influential. You'll notice what he says. He doesn't say none of you were any of those things. He says not many. Not many. Because you, you may be rich and you may be influential, but God may still want to save you in spite of that. Not because of it, for sure, but in spite of it. It's awfully hard for a rich man to get to heaven, Jesus said. Well, then who can be saved? Well, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. By and large, this is a church of nobodies. It's nobody Baptist church. And the, the wisdom of God here actually turns thinking about worldly, worldly wisdom about human beings on its head. Listen to what, look, listen to verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that, uh, sorry, did I skip something? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now you have to read that very carefully because what it does not say is that God took a bunch of nobodies and made them somebodies. It does not say that. This is the gospel that some people preach today. That if you're a nobody, God can make you somebody. But that's not what the text says. God does, God does not say he chose the foolish to make them wise. Or the weak to make them strong. No, God chose nobodies to demonstrate that he is somebody. That he is wise, he is powerful, he is beautiful, he is magnificent, he is glorious to the world. Let me tell you something. Today, we are incredibly afraid of being considered nobodies. We're deathly afraid of it. You don't believe me? Go into any public high school and read the posters about the children. Apparently, they can do anything and they are somebodies, and you don't have to limit it to public schools. I can guarantee you that. And you don't have to limit it to people who go outside their house for school. Just look in the homeschool rooms of some folks. You're it. You're all that in a bag of Doritos. You can't fail. We are terrified of it. And so we stand up and say, I am somebody. I am strong. I am smart. Show me respect. Show me honor. And if we're Christians, we just tag on Jesus' name to the end of all those. But God doesn't. Isn't that interesting? It should be compelling to us that that's not what God does here. This isn't the wisdom of the gospel. No, absolutely. Human beings are made in the image of God. 
Human beings have inherent value because of that. We ought to treat human beings with dignity and respect. This text is not erasing that truth. But what this text should erase is our obsession with loving ourselves, valuing ourselves, exalting ourselves, glorying in ourselves. Self, self, self. Let me tell you something, friend, in my life and in your life, there's only room for glory for one. God will not share his glory with anyone else. We celebrate these children this morning. We love them. And they are depraved and sinners in need of a Savior. And they will express that sinfulness early and often, which is why parents must patiently persevere and keep pointing to the person who can save them. Now you say, Toby, you seem to be taking that a bit far, all this, you know, it's not about self, not about self. Well, it seems to be what Paul is saying, actually, because if you look at the next verse, verse 29, why did God do all this choosing? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, if we still struggle with that, let me point you to one other place. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How did he look to the world? Did he look wise? Did he look powerful? Did he look noble? He didn't appear to be much. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He bends down and he washes his disciples' feet. He empties himself. The people in his own hometown are looking at him saying, that guy ain't nobody. That's just Joseph's boy. We know him. He built my table. Who is he? And when he went to the cross, he's reduced to nothing in the world's eyes. That's why he's mocked. You remember how he's mocked? Well, come on down. If you can save others, why don't you just save yourself? You're the Christ. You can do it. He's reduced to nothing. He is seen as the lowest of the low, a criminal. But in that nothingness, God's glory was on display. The foolish, God chose the foolishness of the cross to shame the wise. God chose the weakness of the cross to shame the strong. God chose the despicable cross to shame the honorable. He chose the nothingness of the cross to accomplish something glorious. So if God does that with the Lord Jesus Christ, what greater honor can there be than following in Jesus' footsteps as nobody's? Where can you find greater glory than that? Those who humble themselves, he will exalt them. 
And actually, to acknowledge that I'm a nobody is actually part of becoming a Christian. To acknowledge that I have nothing to offer, no bargaining chip before God, nothing to bring to the table except my sin. I am a nobody. I need somebody to save me. And the good news is that for any nobody who comes to Christ by faith, who is brought into Christ Jesus by God, Christ becomes his wisdom. Look at verse 30. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, uh, not and, sorry, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, the wisdom of the cross is brought into our lives. What is the wisdom of the cross? Well, it's righteousness. It's righteousness. We come as sinners, but we're forgiven and counted as righteous in the sight of God. What is the wisdom of God? Well, it's sanctification. It's the fact that we were set apart. We're sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Set apart. We're made fully God's. What's the wisdom of the cross? Redemption. We've been set free from slavery to sin. That's the wisdom of the, of the cross. That's, the, that's Christ who is our wisdom. That's the wisdom that's brought into our lives. The question for you, friend, and the question for me is that will you admit that before God that you've got nothing? Will you admit that you're a nobody? That nothing you have obliges God to save you? That nothing, that, that, that you deserve nothing good from God? That you are a nobody if you will embrace this and come to Jesus. What you don't deserve, He will give you. Salvation. You see, Jesus became a nobody to save a nobody like you. Do you believe that? I don't mean do you believe it when the pastor's looking you in the eye. I mean when you walk home today and you're reflecting back on what was said this morning in the text and all of those words and what Paul was saying, will you say, well, <laughs> that's just silliness. I've got to become somebody before God will accept me. No, friend. You've just got to realize you're nobody and come to Him by faith. Those are the people of the cross. Finally, the unexpected preaching of the cross. If the cross has unexpected power, and if the cross saves unexpected people, then it's not too far a stretch for us to understand it's going to come through unexpected preaching. So Paul's reflecting back on arriving in Corinth. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." You see, Paul doesn't believe that the gospel is a product that needs to be sold, that it needs to be marketed, that it needs special techniques or clever arguments or awe-inspiring presentations. That's why he says he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Did you notice how that's written? 
He decided. It's not that Paul can't use lofty speech. It's not that Paul can't leave you speechless with his oratory or utilize human wisdom. He is a studied man. He is a brilliant man. It's not a matter of the fact that he can't. It's that he won't. He decided not to. Nothing is going into the pulpit with Paul except the cross of Christ. That's it. Everything else stays out. That's all he has to offer. He has nothing better to offer. He has nothing more powerful to offer. He has nothing wiser to offer. All he has is Christ. In other words, he's not going to let the culture of the day dictate how he preaches, dictate what he preaches, dictate what he's counting on to be effective as he preaches. You see, in our desire to bring the gospel to our culture, how often is it that we think we need to give the gospel a good polish? That, you know, if you have something in your house that's scratched on one side, you turn that scratch, you know, so you just make the really good part of that vase out for your mother-in-law. And the scratch that's in the back, maybe she'll never see it. And sometimes we go about the idea of sharing the gospel this way, that there's a good side we need to put forward you know, we, we need to keep it light and we need to keep it positive. But, but, but the things in the back, the, thing, the, the scratch of sin and, and death and hell, they'll eventually learn that. But let's just, let's, just, let's just keep a good face forward for the gospel. You see, the problem is that to take a modified message to the world is to not take the message of the cross. We either take Jesus as he is or we don't take him at all. If we erase the reality of punishment, we diminish the glory of the cross, you see. Why would Jesus have to die if there's no punishment or if it's not all that bad? Not only is the preaching unexpected, actually the preacher is unexpected too. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul was weak. That word shows up over and over in here. Weakness, weakness, weakness. The risen Christ says to him in 2 Corinthians 12 that my power is perfected in weakness. Paul's weak in his body, maybe from medical issues, maybe just from all the beatings he's taken as a preacher of the gospel. He's actually gotten a reputation for looking pretty weak. 2 Corinthians 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. And he stood before them in this weakness, and not only that, in fear and trembling, not because he feared them, okay? Not because fear of man gripped Paul. Fear of man grips a lot of preachers. But he would not be testifying to this as a good thing, as the thing that is preferred if it were fear of man, because fear of man lays a snare. No. He stands in fear, of, in fear and trembling because of the one who called him and the one who sent him, the one he represents, the one he preaches. He fears relying on himself and not on the Lord. Verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration 
of the Spirit and of power. See, Paul doesn't bring to them the best he's got to offer. He doesn't put his silver bullet of a sermon in the, in the gun. He brings them the best that God has to offer. God's Spirit and God's power. I just want you to know that that grips me. I had lunch with a few other pastors this week, and we talked about this. We talked about the fact that when we are preaching, it seems that it's very easy at one moment to rely on the Spirit of God and His help, and in another moment to rely on our skills and to waffle back and forth. And as I considered that, I felt what Paul feels, fear and trembling, I, friends, I don't want you to be persuaded by me. I don't want your mind changed by me. I don't want your faith resting in my skill or ability or wisdom. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As you pray for me, that is what you must pray. Don't just pray I'll get it right in the study because just getting it right in the study and saying all the true things up here does not mean power. Do you know that? If I am standing here relying on me, that is powerless. And none of us benefit from it. The one who stands here must be irrelevant in comparison to the message preached from here. The one whose word is brought here. The one whose spirit will speak here. I must decrease. He must increase. You see, if our faith rests in the wisdom of men and the skill of a preacher and a cleverly made argument, then it won't take long before there's another, another clever argument, a better preacher who's going to come along and just pull our hearts away to something else. Not only that, if it rests in the, in the wisdom and skill of a particular man, then that so often, I mean, how many weeks actually go by when we don't hear of men who are falling morally out of the ministry? If our faith rests in all of those things that they preach, all of, the, all of their skill, all of the way they turn the phrase, all of the way that they put it together, what's going to happen when they're no longer there? Our faith has to rest in the power of God. And if you look back at chapter 1, verse 18, you'll see that the power of God is the word of the cross. The word of the cross is the power of God delivered by the Spirit to us, by the Spirit through the preacher, by the Spirit to our hearts. Because if... If our faith rests in the word of the cross, which is the power of God, then it will not fail, and it cannot be moved, and we will make it.
these unexpected people who know the unexpected power of the gospel through some unexpected preacher with his unexpected preaching (laughs) unexpectedly to the world they'll be the one standing in the end our preaching doesn't make sense to the world our gospel doesn't make sense to the world we don't make sense to the world but the word of the cross is the power of God May the power of the cross, the word of the cross, always be what marks our ministry. Always. 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 The messenger is buried. The message goes on. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow in humility as sinners who rightly deserve your judgment and give you thanks for the power of the cross. We pray that you would keep us from the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness before you. We pray that as we share the gospel that we would rely on nothing but your spirit and your power in doing so. Help us to come to grips, Lord, with the fact that we're nobodies. And that you chose to save us. Keep us from boasting in ourselves, in our skills, in the talents that you give us, but rather boasting in the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand, and uh, we're going to sing that, and then...